Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. What would you do if you suddenly found out that Jesus knew everything about your church, its activities, how it spends its money, every single detail? Would that cause you to change anything? Well, in fact, he does, as he revealed to the church in Ephesus. Pastor Phil turns our attention there today, looking at Revelation chapter 2. Number two, they have an historic application. These seven churches, in a symbolic way, speak to different periods of church history from the apostolic age, which is the first century, all the way to the rapture, which concludes the church age. Uh, One commentator spelled it out like this. I'll just read it to you. Ephesus, the church of the first century, was generally praiseworthy, but it had already left its first love. Smyrna, from the first to the fourth century, the church suffered persecution under the Roman emperors. Pergamus, during the fourth and fifth centuries, Christianity was recognized as an official religion through Constantine's patronage. And we'll look at more of these in detail as we get to each one. Thyatira, from the 6th to the 15th century, the Roman Catholic Church largely held sway in Western Christendom until rocked by the Reformation. In the East, the Orthodox Church ruled. Sardis, the 16th and 17th centuries were the post-Reformation period. The light of the Reformation soon became dim. Philadelphia, during the 18th and 19th centuries, there were mighty revivals and great missionary movements. And Laodicea, the church of the last days, is pictured as lukewarm and apostate. It is the church of liberalism and ecumenism. Number three, there's also a timeless application. These, speak, these churches speak to all churches in all ages, in all places throughout the world. Each one has its own personal character, and that's important. Ephesus is a loveless church. Smyrna is the persecuted church. Pergamos is the compromising church. Thyatira is the adulterous church. Sardis is the dead church. Philadelphia is the faithful church. And Laodicea is the apostate church. And as you can see, you can have churches in any age, in any place, that at any given time might reflect one of the, or even more of those particular qualities. So in some ways it's representative of the church throughout the entire world in all periods of the church age, which is why the number seven, I think, is significant. I think Jesus has got a broad scope in view when he picked these seven to represent all of the church uh, throughout the church age around the world. And number four, and probably the most practical one for us in this room, there is a personal application. Who is the church? We are. The church is people, not buildings. We are the church. And so I believe that these letters are a mirror that every Christian should look into and use to examine our own individual walk and relationship with the Lord because at any given time we might become loveless or compromising or dead in our walk or faithful 
or whatever. So in many ways, these seven letters to these seven churches are indicative of the different periods we might find ourselves in in our Christian life, in our journey from conversion all the way to glory. So as we study these, you know, meditate on each one, on the main theme that Jesus is bringing forth, and then take a good hard look at it as if you were looking into a mirror and ask yourself, is this really where I'm at? And if so, I need to heed what Jesus said about fixing some of these problems in my life. Well, quickly, there is a specific structure that these letters follow. I'll just give it to you quickly. Each one opens with the name of the individual church, of course, but the meaning of each church name is significant, as we'll point out as we go. Each is then followed by a title that Jesus chooses to call himself by, which comes out of the vision of himself that he showed John in chapter 1. We'll show you that as well. This is also meaningful, because as Jesus chooses to call himself by one of these titles uh, in the vision that John saw in chapter 1, it is also meaningful and significant. It kind of relates to something that Jesus sees going on in each particular church. Next comes the statement, I know your works, which first leads to a commendation as Jesus points out what is positive in each church, and then it is followed by an accusation as he points out what is not so good or what is bad in each church, what they need to repent for and get right. Number four, after that comes an exhortation. The exhortation to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to change what is bad and to strengthen what is good. And then finally, they end with a special promise that is given to the overcomers. That's kind of the general format that these letters will follow. Uh, And that brings us really to the church of Ephesus, which we have called the loveless church. Let's read the first seven verses together. Where Jesus said to John, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So it begins to the angel of the church of Ephesus. The Greek word is angelos. It's translated most of the time in the New Testament, angel as supernatural being, that kind of angel. But it simply means messenger. And it is translated in different places in the New Testament, referring to human messengers. And as we've already said, I believe that's the correct interpretation here. I don't know why God would give, why God would give to, you know, John something to give to an angel 
about God when they have direct access to God already. Uh, I believe that the angel is just simply referring to the pastor or the elder of each church, in this case, the church of Ephesus. Now, let me just stop and just quickly give you a little background on this city. Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor, not the capital, but it was the most important city, kind of like Chicago is not the capital of Illinois, Springfield is, but Chicago is way more important. That was the idea. Uh, Ephesus was a, was a thriving metropolis, and it was the most important city in Asia Minor. In New Testament times, it was estimated that it contained as much as 500,000 people that lived in this city. It was a free city. In other words, the Roman government allowed it to govern itself. It could have its own elections. The uh, officers or officials or city fathers were not placed there by the Roman Empire. They were elected by the people of the city. So they had some autonomy within reason. No Roman troops were stationed there because they were a free city. And the city also hosted athletic events that rivaled the Olympics. It was a big town. The city actually sat three miles inland from the Aegean Sea. But there was a river called the Castor River that came right up to the shores of Ephesus. In fact, uh, the, the mouth of the Castor was so large, it opened up right there by the city and led all the way into the Aegean Sea. So that meant that Ephesus had the most important, the, most, the greatest uh, port in Asia Minor. I mean, they had all kinds of shipping uh, going on there and, 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 and commercial trade by sea uh, because it had this incredible harbor there uh, that opened up into the Aegean. There were also four main trade routes that went through Ephesus, which made it, gave it the reputation of being known as the gateway to Asia. It had a theater that sat 25,000 people. You can read about that theater in Acts chapter 19. There's a little commotion there one day. When Paul was in town, as there often was when Paul was in town, a riot, basically, for two hours they chanted, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, there in that very theater. They had a library that boasted 200,000, of course, handwritten volumes. So it was no small little thing. And as I've already alluded to, it was the center of the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis, that was her name in Greek, or the Roman name was Diana. She was a fertility goddess, and she was depicted by a little black statue with a, a, her torso was covered with breasts all over. Grotesque little idol. But it represented uh, Diana, who was the goddess of fertility. Her temple was there in Ephesus, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was an incredible thing. A awesome to, to look at, from what I understand, the reading I've done uh, about it is just incredible. And of course, because she was a fertility goddess, this temple was manned by male and female prostitutes and all kinds of lewd, immoral things, licentious things went on in this temple, which helped to pay to upkeep the temple and other things. So it was a, a real source of revenue for the city. Now, Paul ministered in Ephesus three years, longer than any other place that he ministered, and he established a good, strong church there. When he moved on, Timothy took it over and pastored the church of Ephesus for a time, and then John the Apostle also pastored for a while. In fact, John moved to Ephesus uh, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, because Jesus had committed her into his care. And so she died in Ephesus and was buried there, and so did John. And uh, But he pastored there for a while. 
This church had an incredible history. The spiritual foundation that was laid there was absolutely incredible. So, again, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The right hand speaks of authority. The seven stars we learn in verse 20 of chapter 1 refer to the seven pastors of these churches. But let me just say this. Because Jesus mediates his authority through his pastors or elders in a very real way, you see him pictured holding his church in his right hand. Remember now, this is the hand that bore the nail prints. This is the hand that was nailed to a cross because he loved his church and died for her. This authority is not dictatorial. It's not oppressive. It's a servant leadership. The same kind of leadership that we as men are commanded to show our wives. Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, he said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Yes, we men are in authority over our wives, but it should never be a dictator doormat. It should never be oppressive. It should never be, you know, I'm the master and she's the slave kind of a relationship. It is a servant leadership role where I am to die as a husband to put her first and her needs first, even as Jesus died for his bride. So, yes, he's holding his church in his right hand. But remember, it's the hand that went to the cross. It's the hand that bore the nail prints, you know, of course, both hands, but you understand what I'm saying. It's an authority that's based in love. And that is going to set the tone and the theme for this letter. Jesus' love relationship that he wants with this church or really any church. So these things says he who holds the seven stars with his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. Again, we learned in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, that these seven golden lampstands represent these churches. And so here we have a picture of Jesus walking in the midst of his church and saying, I know everything that is going on with absolute clarity. That's the idea behind the Greek word for know there, K-N-O-W, in verse 2. It's, I know perfectly. I know absolutely what's going on in your church, even as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, nothing in creation is hidden from his sight. All things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. Now, let me say this that can either bring great comfort or great discomfort, depending on what a Christian or a church is involved in. The Bible says when he comes for his church, many are going to be ashamed of his appearing. Because they haven't been faithful. They're not living for him. They're living carnal lives and compromising lives. And so when they, he comes for them, of course, they're saved by grace. They're going to be taken in the rapture. But when they see him face to face, they're going to be ashamed that they did not live a life of total commitment to him. Now, of course, those Christians who are living lives of commitment and maybe even, even suffering persecution because of their commitment to Christ, the fact that he knows what they're going through is great comfort. Because the Lord knows that I'm living for him. He sees what's going on. He's taking care of everything. And it just brings me comfort to know that, that he sees everything I'm going through. But verse 2, Jesus said, I 
know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Now, we get into the, the commendation. And first of all, this was a serving church. This was a serving church. They were busy doing the Lord's work. And I would have no doubt that uh, their weekly schedule was just filled with activities, you know. There were Bible studies, and there were prayer meetings, and there were potlucks, and there was, you know, probably street evangelism and discipleship and other things that were going on in their church. They were busy about the Lord's work. They were not a bunch of pew potatoes, you might say. They were going for it, man. They were busy. Also, they were a sacrificing church. The word labor there means to toil to the point of exhaustion. It was costing this church something as they served the Lord. I mean, they were really going for it. I mean, they were working to the point of exhaustion. They were really, it was costing them time and energy and and all to serve God. It wasn't just a kind of a casual, well, I'll do this a little bit and I'm going to go rest, you know, for a couple weeks. And, you know, they were really just really serving and it was consistent and it was laboring to the point of exhaustion. Number three, they were a steadfast church. The word patience there is the Greek word hupomone and carries the meaning of endurance under trial. The idea is that when the tough times came, they didn't give up. They persevered. They, they pressed on. You know, when the going got tough, they kept going. They didn't just fall by the wayside. Sometimes we Christians, you know, we don't persevere at all. And how is the Lord going to teach us how to persevere if he doesn't bring adversity that, that will cause us to, you know, to hang in there? That's how we learn perseverance. Not in the good times. You learn perseverance when things are tough. This church lived at a time when the Roman Empire was persecuting the church. And number four, they were a sanctified church. They did not tolerate evil practices or evil people in their fellowship. Look, holiness was important to them, and so they exercised church discipline. Church discipline. Something that's almost non-existent in the modern church today. Years ago, Gail Irwin, who is a conference speaker and author, gave a teaching on church discipline. And he said that there are three words associated with church discipline. The words restore, remove, and reconcile. You restore the sinner when they repent. You remove the person that causes division because they are the most dangerous when it comes to the health of a church. One who sows discord among brethren, the Bible says, is an abomination in the eyes of God. So you remove the divisive person. And number three, you reconcile with those you're having conflict with. That's the biblical pattern. Gail said, we get it backwards. We restore the person that causes divisions. We remove the sinner without trying to help them to repent. And number three, we never reconcile with the person who's giving us trouble. But you see, this church was healthy. And a healthy body heals itself, doesn't it? A healthy body has an immune system. And when you're talking about the body of Christ, that immune system is called, listen, discernment and discipline. Discernment and discipline. And both we get from doctrine. It is the Word of God that teaches us what to discern. I mean, what is good, what is evil. We discern between good and evil because of what God says in His Word. And, of course, the Word also admonishes us as a church to put into practice 
If people are causing problems or division or discord and they will not repent, then we are to move in as leaders and we are to deal with the situation. We're not to sweep it under the carpet and pretend it doesn't exist. Because if we don't do that, the church is going to suffer. You see, discernment and discipline are the immune system of the body of Christ. If you remove those, you remove the body's defense mechanism. We all know what AIDS is, right? AIDS is that horrible disease that as soon as it invades your body, the first thing it does is it wipes out your immune system. You know, AIDS doesn't really kill you, but it just wipes out your immune system so that eventually something else does, like a cold or like a fever or some other thing that invades the body that your body can't fight off any longer because the immune system is gone. It invades the body, and the body eventually gets weak and then dies. You know, because people in the name of tolerance and love, are no longer discerning between good and evil and exercising church discipline, I think that the body of Christ has given itself a spiritual case of AIDS. I was just having lunch with Don Vino the other day. Don is the director of Midwest Christian Outreach. And Don coined a phrase in one of his newsletters about this. He said, AIDS in the body of Christ is acquired ignorance of doctrine syndrome. We're not being taught sound doctrine very much anymore today. We're being taught psychology. We're being taught all kinds of warm, fuzzy messages on how to do this, how to be successful, the five steps in being wealthy, or this ten steps of doing this or achieving that. We're not being fed, overall in the body of Christ is not being fed, a good, healthy diet of sound doctrine anymore. And because of it, the body of Christ is sick. Coupled with the fact that it refuses today to exercise any kind of discernment or church discipline, that's where the body of Christ is so weak and sickly. I want you to notice something here. Jesus, listen to me, commends this church for their intolerance and not for their tolerance. Today we have it backwards. The church commends tolerance, but is down on intolerance. Jesus said, you got this going, and I love it. You don't tolerate evil men in your midst. You don't tolerate sin. That was a plus. Now, Corinth, they were a very tolerant church. And all you can do is read the letters to First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Epistles, to see that because they were so tolerant, they were a church loaded with sin and division and schisms. They had not grown up. Paul says, I wish I could write to you and speak to you as to spiritual people, but I can't. You're just babes in Christ. And how do I know you're babes and acting like mere unsaved people because of all the divisions and the, and the factions and the schisms among you? Doesn't this prove that you're acting carnal and like mere men and not like children of God? Look, any church that is unwilling or unable because it's too sick to purge itself of the evil or the poisons that have entered into it, that church is going to grow weaker and weaker until it finally dies. And Paul here talks about dealing with divisive people. Look, I'll just give you two scriptures. I mean, there's all kinds of scriptures you can look at on this issue. Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. Paul said, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Romans 16, verse 17. Paul says, now I urge you, brethren, Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. 
The vision is a very serious thing. In fact, the Bible talks about heresies. There are damning heresies, which are teachings that will damn a person to hell if embraced, because they deny Christ in some way. But the word heresy, very simply, is a word that means division. The idea is getting people on your side in what you believe. I mean, we think of heresy as false doctrine all the time. Sometimes it is. Many times it's just simply bringing division into the body by getting people, for some reason and some way, to kind of gravitate to you because, you know, you've got this new insight into Scripture or God's given you some new revelation or you don't like the pastor because you don't think he teaches, you know, he's not filled with the Spirit. And so people have all kinds of reasons why they try to, try to draw away disciples after themselves. And that's a very serious thing. And I would ask all of you to be on guard for those who try to sow discord among brethren. If there's something that one of the leaders does or teaches that you think is a problem, come to us. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for me.